Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. We've got a special topic uh, to discuss uh, today because we have just marked an important anniversary in uh, civil rights and in human rights in Georgia. This past Sunday, June 27th, was the 50th anniversary of the first gay pride parade in Atlanta. It came at a rather in a very dark time, really, for the LGBTQ community uh, here in Georgia and really across the country. Remember that in Georgia in 1971, homosexuality was illegal, and um, the community was often ostracized and, in many cases, demonized, felt to feel that they did not belong. Many members of the community uh, hid their, their uh, sexual identity, were nervous and afraid to uh, come out openly for fear of being persecuted. And yet, on that day in 1971, uh, they showed up on Peachtree Street and decided to declare they were here and they were going to demand to be seen and known. We're going to talk about the history of the LGBT community, uh, Q community, starting back then and moving all the way forward, uh, both here and across the country. And it's important to note that Georgia has played a key role in at least a couple of very important court decisions. In 1986, uh, the Supreme Court made a decision uh, that was unfavorable and uh, has since been looked down upon by uh, most people who are advocates of human rights. We'll talk about what that decision was. But just in 2020, the court, in fact, uh, ruled uh, on a Clayton County case that, in fact, declared that um, gay and lesbian individuals did have protections under the civil rights laws of the United States. So we're going to talk about all that and where the challenges still remain with a wonderful panel. First of all, it's Tuesday. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC, is here. And in many ways, Tamar, it was you who reminded us of the important uh, anniversary on this past Sunday, June 27th, 1971, with a wonderful uh, in-depth piece on what that first parade was all about. So thank you for being here for the show today, Tamar. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to diving in today. Um, there were many elders of that community who still have the respect of the people who are now, in fact, uh, the activists moving forward uh, uh, gay rights uh, in it, it, as it continues to be an issue. Um, we're having the next generation uh, with us today in many ways to talk about, Mays to talk about the issue, starting with Jeff Graham, Executive Director of Georgia Equality. Jeff has been a leader in terms of rights for the LGBTQ community for many years. And, and I think it's fair to say one of the most respected leaders by all, uh, certainly at the state capitol, where for a very long time he's been listened to, even by those who might not necessarily agree <laughs> with all of the rights and legal protections that uh, the community now has. Jeff, I'm very, you and I have known each other forever, and I'm really glad you could be here today. 
We sure have, Bill. Uh, again, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I appreciate you uh, inviting me to be on the program. Sure. Um, did I say that you are the executive director of Georgia Equality? I think I did, but, you, you but if did. I didn't, I apologize. And I am. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> and we're joined by your uh, statewide outreach manager, Shannon Clawson, also at Georgia Equality. Shannon, thank you. How long have you uh, been at Georgia Equality, Shannon? A little over three years. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, what does it mean to be statewide outreach director for the organization? Um, you know that song, the I've Been Everywhere song? That's, that's, that's what it means. <laughs> it's my job to go everywhere in Georgia, from Savannah up to Blue Ridge, down to Valdosta, over to Augusta. So um, we go to all the state pride festivals, um, which there are many, um, and um, work with community leaders and activists all over the state to make sure that um, their communities are moving towards um, equality um, in every little village and town across Georgia. Okay, well, thank you again for being here. Taylor Alexander joins us as well today. He is the founder and the executive director of Southern Fried Queer Pride. Tell us a little bit about what the organization's uh, mission is, please, Taylor. Hi, thank you for having me. So Southern Fried Queer Pride, SFQP, we are a bunch of DIY artists, organizers, and community mobilizers all surrounded around the idea that you can be LGBTQIQA and from the South and happy and thriving. Also to uplift the narrative that the South has a robust political background, a robust uh, queer community, and the idea that the change that we want to see in the world, while it definitely has to come through certain channels, it also can be grown within the community. Um, so that's kind of our platform and, and what we stick to. Okay, thank you so much uh, for telling us about that. Um, Tamara, please start us off. Give, set set the, um, the stage for what happened on June 27th, 1971. Certainly a far different kind of gay pride parade than what we're used to seeing uh, today. Sure. I mean, the, this came at a time when of course, being gay was illegal. Um, you know, at the state level, at the national level, there were sodomy laws, there were constant police raids at gay hangouts, you know, kind of a lot of underground bars that, that people would hang out in, Piedmont Park. So it was super dangerous. Your, your family could reject you. You could get fired from your job. You could lose your housing if you were found out. So it was at immense personal risk if you were going to be out and about and gay in any way. Um, and so the match, I think, was lit for a lot of activists two years prior. You know, there was the Stonewall riots in New York, of course, in, um, in, June, um, in June 1969. But about six weeks later, here in Midtown, uh, at the Ansley Mini Mall, there was a, a cinema that was there that was running uh, Lonesome Cowboys, which was an Andy Warhol movie that featured um, some gay sex scenes. And there were about 70 people who'd settled in for a showing on a, on a Tuesday night, and the cops raided the place, uh, arresting people, and especially gay men, for pretty much any reason they could think of. And I think that was the moment for a lot of people where 
folks just said, this is enough. We're sick of getting harassed all the time. And a, a group of activists met at a restaurant near Emory and formed what would become the Georgia Gay Liberation Front. And to celebrate the second anniversary of the Stonewall riot, they did a very small march on, on Peachtree Street. They had applied for a permit with the city of Atlanta to march in the streets. They were turned down. Uh, for that. So they were marching on the sidewalks, about 125 people stopping at every single red light uh, before they, they could cross. And they made their way to uh, Piedmont Park, where there was some guerrilla theater and kind of amping up the crowd and just kind of, you know, we're all in this together. We can be out front, you know, we can be outwardly queer. And what are you going to do about it, world? And I think it was a signal it was the first moment for a lot of people, you know, even just getting that publicity. If you were young and you were questioning and you, you weren't sure, you could see, oh, there are other LGBTQ people out there and they aren't scared. And it, it was a huge moment, I think, for the community based on a lot of the interviews that I did uh, from that time. So I want to bring everybody into the conversation and ask you about reflecting back on those days. But as I do, Jeff, it, it is sort of it is somewhat ironic that in the cradle of civil rights in Atlanta, Georgia, I mean, the, the, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr.'s home, um, a city that has always taken great pride, if you will, in uh, our belief in civil rights, that, um, that uh, the LGBTQ community was still such an outside uh, group of people and so discriminated against. Yeah, well, you know, certainly uh, that that is true. But I think if you put it in, in, into a larger context, uh, that sort of discrimination, that sort of stigma, the sort of risks that people were taking by coming out and being politically active, that was true across the country and from coast to coast. Uh, so certainly, mm -hmm. you know, we focus on the Stonewall Rebellion uh, that was up there, uh, you know, the, the, the people of color, the sex workers, and specifically the transgender and gender nonconforming folks that had said they had just had it. Uh, but as Tamar mentioned, there had been other rebellions that had been taking place uh, in the years leading up to that around the country. And so uh, while there uh, is a rich history here in, in uh, Atlanta of civil rights, and certainly it was, a challenge throughout the 60s and into the 70s uh, to have the LGBT community uh, uh, become a part of that broader civil rights movement. I think, uh, you know, you can go back earlier uh, and you look at uh, the story of, of Bayard Rustin and, uh, you know, such mm -hmm. an important leader in the 1963 uh, March on Washington and uh, the work that he did. And he was an openly gay man. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And his political leanings were far to the left. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the, the champions of the civil rights movement did keep him there in the movement. Uh, you know, his, his sexual orientation was not necessarily uh, front and center, but it also was not something that uh, he had to completely hide. So I think it would be fairer to say that there's always been a bit of a tension uh, that comes from mm. our Southern traditions when it comes to religion, uh, the outlooks on sexuality in, in general. We're kind of a product of the, the region and the traditions that we spring from. So uh, Taylor and then Shannon, um, I'm assuming you're both relatively young, and uh, um, so come along at a time when, uh, when, when being openly 
uh, uh, gay, lesbian, uh, transgender, whatever, is, is a, a little bit easier than it was certainly back then. So, Taylor, I wonder if you reflect on what the people involved in that 1971 march, um, what courage it must have taken to step out and say, yes, we are who we are, Faith, accept us, as Tamar has said. Taylor? Definitely. I think that the the courage that it took to be open and visible and loud um, is something that I thoroughly respect and something that I I still see in the community today. You know, when I started organizing here in Atlanta around 2011, a lot of the folks who brought me into the movement work were people who have been doing the work for decades. People like uh, Ms. Cheryl Courtney Evans, people like Didi Chambly here in Atlanta. Um, and so that kind of energy and that kind of uh, perseverance is something that um, really was needed to kickstart that kind of energy and that kind of movement, but is definitely still here in the city today. And I think you can see that um, that energy and that, that need to be visible and out loud um, in so many of the organizations and so many of the uh, uh, older activists who are still here and still doing the work because the work still needs to be done in so many in so many ways. Shannon? Yeah, I mean, admiration and gratitude. Um, you know, I think um, I am very much a student of LGBT history, and I think a lot of LGBT people are like that because we don't, we aren't raised necessarily in LGBT homes, right? Like, the you don't have, every gay kid doesn't have a gay parent, right? And so you kind of have to educate yourself. And so when I came out in my 20s, that's when I, I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know everything about Stonewall. I wanted to know everything about um, San Francisco. And I think um, that is so important for our community that we have the opportunity to to know our heritage, to know our history, to be educated by wonderful places um, like um, in the AJC. And I think um, that gives us grounding that is so important because it's still, like Taylor said, it's still necessary. It's still really important. I feel really lucky that I work in a place where I can bring my full self to the job every single day. I don't have to hide parts of myself because it's quote unquote unprofessional. Um, and I think so many Georgians still um, live that life that they don't feel comfortable. And, and that's what I think we're all on this panel working towards is um, creating a society where you can bring your full self, your full queer, loud self to work and have that be valued um, as a part of the community that, that adds to, um, to everything we do. One thing that was interesting to me as I was reporting this story and talking to a lot of activists from the 70s, um, you know, I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s where it felt like so much of the discussion um, in terms of LGBTQ rights were always surrounding marriage. Um, you know, can we get married, civil unions, all of that. But it was so interesting how back in the day in the 70s, that was not an issue that was really discussed. The things that they were really marching for, especially in that first march in 71, um, had to do with repealing sodomy laws. It had to do with passing non-discrimination uh, protections so you couldn't get fired from your job or, you know, lose your apartment and that sort of thing. And it was interesting, you know, the sodomy laws, obviously, that's those have been... Um, you know, the Supreme Court got rid of those in, in 2003, and Georgia did in 1998. But the non-discrimination protections, those are things that until 2020, 
um, we were still talking about. And on the state level, as I'm sure Jeff and Shannon will be happy to talk about, is, is something that Georgia still doesn't have. Yeah, well, and, and Tamar, I'm glad you brought that up. But, uh, you know, despite the Supreme Court decision, uh, in some ways, uh, that was very specific around employment. Uh, and we have yet to see if uh, it will be fully embraced throughout federal law. Uh, and uh, frankly, it'll, in, until we have federal legislation such as the Equality Act that actually adds sexual orientation and gender identity to the 1964 civil rights uh, law, and until we can clean up uh, and modernize the list of businesses that are covered under uh, the Title II, the Public Accommodations Act of that, uh, we're still going to have gaps in federal law. And uh, as you alluded to here in Georgia, we're one of only three states that somehow uh, when other states around the country were passing their own state versions of civil rights laws in the 70s and into the 80s, Georgia sat on the sidelines. And so Georgia, along with Alabama and Mississippi, are the only three states that don't have a broad, comprehensive civil rights law that protects any group of people, much less members of the LGBT community. So uh, what Which... folks were marching for in 1971, we are still. Uh, waiting for that promise to be brought home here in Georgia uh, 50 years later. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you remind us that while I want to talk about some of the great successes legally in, in social uh, circles that, that uh, the community has had, there's a lot of work to be done. So thank you for pointing that out. Let's, in fact, go back and take a look at some of the uh, historical events that have uh, uh, influenced how we uh, deal with the civil rights, the social rights, the human rights of the gay and lesbian community. And, and I think a great starting point, because tomorrow you already basically uh, uh, mentioned it, is let's go to 1986. In 1986, the Attorney General of the state of Georgia, Michael Bowers, uh, went uh, to court uh, because um, what's Hardwick's first, what was Hardwick's first name? I'm sorry, I don't Michael. remember. Michael Hardwick, a bartender in Clayton, I think in Clayton County, um, a search warrant was served on his apartment for another reason, but when the police came in, they found him in bed with another man. And Michael Bowers uh, wanted to make a point that Georgia would not tolerate uh, homosexual behavior tomorrow. And that case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court in 1986. And how did the court rule, Tamar? They ruled in a, a five to four decision that Georgia's sodomy law, and, and specifically they, they weighed in to say as it relates to gay couples, because sodomy used to be illegal also for heterosexual couples, but they specifically singled out gay couples, um, that it's constitutional. And um, the opinion, or sorry, the, the quote that I pulled out from the opinion uh, was from the Chief Justice Warren Berger, who wrote that to hold that the act of homosexual sodomy is somehow protected as a fundamental right would be to cast aside millennia of moral teaching. And it's important to talk about the, the political context of the time. We're at the height of hysteria over AIDS. Um, you know, LGBT people, but particularly gay men, are being really demonized nationally. Um, you know, we talked last week with Sarah Schulman on this show about AIDS and how at the time it was seen as this gay cancer. 
and how there were so many elected officials who didn't want to go anywhere near it to even say it or acknowledge it. And I think that's important to, as we think about this Supreme Court ruling, about what might have been in the justices' heads as they ruled on this. And it would take them, by the way, it would take them, by the way, almost 20 years to reverse themselves. Not until 2003 would they strike down Texas's sodomy law. Shannon, that's exactly what I was going to mention to you. The fact that the Supreme Court uh, made that uh, decision in 86 and went so long, um, almost 20 years, without revisiting and and, and reversing it is kind of staggering and tells you something about how slowly the wheels of justice have moved for this movement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we look at um, these really important cases that are going through the Supreme Court right now, um, it, it, it's a nerve-wracking. You know, we just had a, a case um, decided a couple of weeks ago, and um, thankfully that was a very narrow decision that doesn't have broad-ranging effects. But um, I think the Supreme Court is a very slow, laborious body, and we know that, which is why it is so important for us to be focused on legislation that protects us from um, these kind of <clears throat> value-based, morally-based, you know, things that change over time. I think the thing that struck me in that quote was the, the millennia of moral teaching. Well, Gay people have been around for millennia too, right? LGBT folks have been, are always there. Um, and I think there is this false idea, this incorrect attitude that, um, that there's, only, there's only ever been one morality. And we know that that's not true. And, and we can see that in our own country shift. You know, even just 20 years ago, um, when I was a, a young woman, they... The idea of being openly LGBT was ludicrous to me. I was raised in a very Christian um, household. And and now what struck me with um, Tamar's piece is actually we've really come a really long way, you know, and and things are moving. You know, sometimes when you're in the trenches day in and day out, you get really like thinking like, oh, my God, we're going so slow. And we sometimes we take a loss and all this kind of stuff. But if you step back and look at the last 50 years, from where it was in the 70s versus, you know, we just, we now have the Supreme Court has ruled for employment protections, right? And we have the right to marry and we hopefully will get the Equality Act passed and hopefully we'll get a non-discrimination civil rights um, law here in Georgia. You know, I was talking with my partner the other day with all the attacks on trans kids right now, but like if that didn't happen 15 years ago, do you think parents would be so up in arms? Like, the parents of LGBT kids that used to kick them out are now going down to the Capitol saying, keep your hands off your legislation off my kids. Um, so I do mm-hmm. think that there is an incredible shift. So even though the Supreme Court continues to be its laborious self, I think um, the society at large is moving forward and legislation can help protect us from some of those slow moves. Um, Jeff, one sign of uh, slow progress, but progress nonetheless, is the fact that Michael Bowers, who was uh, enemy number one of the gay and lesbian community for many years as a result of uh, Bowers v. Hardwick, uh, is he recanted. He acknowledged uh, that he was wrong about that and that he was sorry uh, that he had uh, moved forward with that case. Yeah, well, uh, frankly, it's uh, part of what keeps me hopeful. 
uh, and optimistic over the decades because not only did he recant, and it was not just Bowers versus Hardwick. He had a number of uh, state-level Supreme Court decisions uh, uh, on domestic partner benefits, on employment law uh, here in Georgia. So he actually has a, a pretty extensive uh, anti-LGBTQ history. But a few years ago, we were on the same on the same side when it came to fighting uh, uh, attempts to bring in a so-called religious freedom law into Georgia. And not only did he recant, he actually came to work for me at Georgia Equality. And so <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that 86 Supreme Court decision because I was uh, you know, 23 years old at the time, and it was an, an incredibly uh, moving uh, time in my life where I felt despair uh, at reading the words that Tamar just brought forward. And I could not believe that my government had turned its back on me in that way. And it actually yeah, kind of yeah. launched decades of, of activism. And to think that, uh, you know, close to 40 years later that uh, Michael Bowers came to work for me at Georgia Equality to help advance our agenda. Taylor, um, Tamar mentioned AIDS, HIV AIDS, and, and of course in the early and mid-80s and really into the 90s, um, one of the things that continued to stigmatize the uh, community, especially gay men, uh, was uh, the uh, uh, fear in the community about uh, gay men carrying this deadly disease which they could uh, transmit to others around them regardless of sexual orientation. It, it, um, it, it took a lot of energy out of a forward progress, I think, for a period of time uh, before uh, we got on track. Not to mention, as we talked about in this show last week, the enormous toll uh, it took on the lives of so many uh, uh, gays and some lesbians as well uh, and straight people uh, because the government refused to act. But it certainly slowed any progress that the community had hoped to make. Definitely. I think that um, there's this uh, current conversation going on online where um, a lot of LGBTQ people don't have a whole generation of LGBTQ elders because of the HIV AIDS mm -hmm. epidemic. And it makes you think what kind of political possibilities, what kind of mm -hmm. historical education could have been passed down had our government stepped in or had our you know society at large been more supportive and tried to save this generation of amazing people that we lost um i think we're still battling a lot of the same things today you know as much as there has been some education as long as there you know has also been some advancement in medication um the kind of proliferation of prep if you will in that regard the stigma and the worry and the kind of misinformation around HIV and AIDS today is still, it still permeates everything. Um, I think especially, you know, I have a lot of privilege in being somebody who lives in, a, in an urban city who has steady access to, you know, STI testing whenever I want, um, who has access to community people who are living with HIV, who are living with AIDS, who I can talk to and get that kind of historical perspective from. But for people, you know, outside of Atlanta, um, in more rural communities, and in spaces where there's not even a comprehensive sex ed in schools, um, we're still in a battleground where misinformation can contribute to, you know, the harm that is 
is is you know running rampant in our communities and i think it'll it's going to take more comprehensive sex education i think it's going to take more acknowledgement and involvement from our government um and you know ad- allocating more funds towards you know communities living with hiv that's going to tackle these issues but i would say the largest thing right now is, is definitely still stigma we can't even talk about it within communities still Okay, uh, thank you for that. I'm late for a break. I want to get to it right now. We'll be back with a lot more conversation on Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're talking today, we're going back to uh, 1971, which was the date of the, the year of the first gay pride march in Atlanta, and going forward from there to talk about the progress and areas where there still needs to be enormous work to do in uh, uh, providing legal, human, and civil rights uh, for the LGBTQ uh, community. Tamar Hallerman uh, is with us, senior reporter at the AJC. Jeff Graham, the executive director of Georgia Equality. Shannon Clawson, who is the statewide outreach uh, coordinator for Georgia Equality. And uh, Taylor Alexander, who is the executive director and founder of Southern Fried Queer Pride. Uh, and Taylor, I owe you an apology. I'm 74. I'm an old man. And so I'm still dealing with pro- learning pronouns correctly. And I, I want to make sure that I identify you as you choose to be as she. And I apologize that I, apparently I misidentified you earlier. So my, my apologies for that, Taylor. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, Jeff, I want to talk about an event that you know very, very well that takes us back in Georgia history. 1993, the summer of 1993. Cobb County was not only the center of attention in the state of Georgia and in Metro Atlanta, but it became a huge national story. I'll set the stage and you weigh in. Uh, The theater in the square up there, a very highly respected a theater in Marietta, did a production of uh, Lips Together, Teeth Apart. I think it's Donald Margulies, but I, I have to check that to make sure who wrote that play. There was a reference on several occasions in that play to the fact that the family, the center of the play, had neighbors who were gay. And the straight community in Cobb County went nuts. The Cobb County Commission Uh, banned all arts funding because they thought that the family values of Cobb were threatened uh, by this play. And it and there were marches at the uh, square. I used to I covered them when I was a reporter at Channel 2 News. And you were there for those extraordinary weeks of craziness, Jeff. Yeah, no, it was it, it was it was a, a, a really uh, transformative time uh, in, in my own uh, uh, activism, uh, you know, and it was not just the, the defunding of the arts in Cobb County, which really brought the arts community, the LGBTQ uh, community uh, uh, together, ACT UP, Queer Nation, uh, Lesbian Avengers, uh, a lot of us uh, going to Marietta for the first time, uh, learning about the big chicken as the landmark so that we could uh, do the turn <laughs> properly uh, to get to the square, learning a, a lot about uh, what was still a newish home for me. Uh, but it also coincided, and I think uh, just as importantly, if not a little bit more importantly, was uh, at, the, at this same period of time, the Cobb County Commission passed a resolution that declared uh, homosexuality incompatible 
with the family values of Cobb County. And that yeah. launched a movement led by Pat Hussein and John Ivan Weaver, uh, the Olympics out of Cobb movement, that when the Olympic uh, flame came through uh, in 1996 and when venues uh, were being distributed throughout the entire state of Georgia, there was enough local, national, and eventually international pressure on the uh, International Olympics Committee that no events took place in Cobb County, and uh, the flame could not even run through Cobb County. And so, I, you know, I, you know we, we, we talk about that at that point in time. Uh, part of why it was uh, transformative to me is uh, it also was a period of time that I would get regular phone calls from the Cobb County Sheriff's Office. Uh, saying that if I was coming to a demonstration or a commissioner's meeting or whatever it would be, that they would meet me at my car to escort me because there had been a uh, death threat made mm-hmm. against me and that they would mm-hmm. they would search my car for bombs before I would be allowed to get in there. A, a very, very dear friend of mine, John Greaves, that actually lived in Cobb County at the time and was one of the local leaders in all of this, uh, the, the threats on his life uh, were even worse. I mean, I was kind of a privileged kid uh, coming from from Atlanta up to Marietta, he actually lived there in Cobb County, and he he and his partner at the time eventually had to to leave Cobb County because the threats on his life were so real. So, uh, I, I think that you know, I, again, as Samar had started off, great risks that people took in the early '70s. There was another generation of folks uh, in the late '80s and '90s that uh, were also uh, taking a lot of risks, and and I'm, I'm I'm lucky and privileged enough to have been amongst a large number of people who uh, who affected those those changes and brought about attention. Tamara, it's hard not to when you hear Jeff tell that story and the way in which the Olympics in, decided to boycott Cobb because of it. It's hard not to think about what's been happening in the state of Georgia and the legislature uh, more recently. I mean, certainly with the election laws that were just passed and Cobb County again being the target of a response from Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star uh, game out. So uh, Cobb County has been in the spotlight uh, for a long time over issues like this. Sure. And something I have been reflecting on as I reported this piece was just how dangerous it was for anybody to, to speak out. As Jeff said, you know, you're worried about threats on your life. I came across, especially in 1971, um, the AJC really didn't cover the gay community. And when the AJC did, it was super offensive often and really not great <laughs> looking back on it with today's eyes. But but the newspaper that did cover it was an underground weekly called The Great Speckled Bird, which, um, you know, a name that political rewind listeners might know is straight Senator Nan Orak. A Democrat from Atlanta helped start that that paper in the 70s. But their offices got firebombed. Um, around that time because somebody didn't like their coverage and the tone of what they did. And that seemed like a regular enough thing. And that's what was so shocking to me is that's unfathomable to me as a reporter, you know, doing my thing in 2020 or 2021. I can't imagine going about your life and dealing with stuff like that on the regular. Shannon um, and Taylor, I want to talk about how uh, uh, the movements uh, went forward uh, we spend a lot of time talking about gay men and what, what they've dealt with over the years. But talk to us, uh, Shannon, talk about how it was, I think, 1972 
that the first organized effort of, of lesbians uh, came together to look specifically at their need to establish their rights and in the in the community. And and that's is it a parallel track or is it all one uh, one movement going forward together? Oh, that's a good question because I think I don't think it's a parallel track, and I don't I think it's too simplistic to say it's one movement. There has always been tension in the LGBTQ community. When you have so many different lived experiences and identities coming together, there will always be tension. There will always be disagreements. There will always be, um, you know, some groups being stepped on or ignored or pushed to the side. And I'm, I'm leaving space for Taylor to talk about um, kind of how the trans community has been um, treated. But, um, you know, from the femme or female part of it, you know, a lot of times people assume that like gay men and lesbian women are like best friends, but actually a lot of times we don't have like a ton in common, right? Like gay men like men and gay men like women. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't work together. Um, and that doesn't, I think at large, the LGBTQ community um, is stronger because of its diversity, because you have all these different lived experiences, heads and hearts in the room. Um, there's a depth um, there that is um, really beautiful and creates some, some magic, quite frankly. Um, when you have to struggle, um, both internally and externally for your liberation, you're really being forged in fire and creating a pretty strong um, metal, a pretty strong community um, to come together. And, and you know, lesbian women, um, women loving women, um, bisexual, pansexual, um, all of those identities um, have always been there at the forefront. You know, there's a really great story. The um, Center for AIDS Research at Emory University holds a, a yearly award show for award ceremony for um, HIV activists in Atlanta that is specifically about the unsung heroes. And it's named after the Barbara Vick Awards um, because Barbara Vick um, in California in the 80s, mobilized all of these lesbian women to um, donate blood and, and help um, with the HIV movement. It was lesbian women in the HIV wards taking care of, of the gay and gender nonconforming men that were sick, right? And so there has always been a love. We've always had each other's backs. Even it's kind of like a brother sister relationship, you know, even though sometimes we want to kill each other, we always have each other's backs. We always just love each other. Taylor, weigh in uh, in in terms of how uh, you see the the way that um, uh, the the, the unity or the differences uh, in dealing with various aspects of the community. I will agree. There's definitely always been tension within the community, and I think it should be expected when you have people with so many different backgrounds and experiences. Um, I think when you break down the community across identity, sexual orientation, gender identity, race, class, income, uh, location, you're going to have lots of tension and different ideas. Um, and I think it's something that the community is still struggling with. You know, even when we talk about, you know, the beginning of the quote unquote queer rights movement, when we talk about Stonewall, when we talk about the, you know, Compton cafeteria riots in California, you obviously see a lot of presence of 
uh, black and brown trans uh, people, you know, especially trans women. We think about Marsha P. Johnson. We think about Sylvia Rivera. But we also think about how years later at those uh, marches that they helped kind of kick off and start, they were barred and excluded from talking on stage. They were sometimes banned or kicked out of those marches. You know, the very ones that they put their, you know, bodies and lives on the line for. And I think you see that same kind of tension uh, throughout the community still to this day, you know, over the past, you know, decade or so with so many like progression in rights, you know, whether it's marriage equality or striking down uh, discriminatory laws, you also see kind of um, attention when we're trying to bring attention to uh, the murder of trans folks, especially black trans women. Uh, when we have, you know, inner community issues that are sometimes pushed to the side because it's not the dominant uh, conversation that's happening. And I think that's a running theme within queer history for the LGBTQ community is that as much as like we're having these moments of amazing um, success legislatively and society and like in society, we also have moments where we're silencing often people within our own community because it's not the current kind of conversation that we're having. But um, I think as much as there is tension within the community, there should also be a recognition of the amazing coalition and uh, community work that's being done together across identities as well. Yeah, and I do want to talk about uh, areas in which the the community has come together to lobby on behalf of uh, important laws. And so tomorrow, one great example of that is uh, for virtually two decades, Georgia did not have a hate crimes law. Uh, th- there was a hate crimes law passed many years ago, right around the turn of the 20, uh, right, right around the, what, 2001, the beginning of the 21st century, I think. Um, but it was ruled as being too vague and broad by the state Supreme Court, and so it was thrown out. And it was years and years, despite efforts by great many people to get a hate, cri- hate crimes law passed again before it finally happened just three sessions ago tomorrow. Yeah. And, um, you know, in, in 2020, you know, this is in the aftermath of the Ahmed Arbery shooting, the, the legislature finally got around to passing a new version. And I'm sure Jeff could talk about this a, a lot, but kind of a, a, not a secret, but I, you know, one of the amazing parts about it is that March, the first time that the state had ever passed any sort of explicit protection for LGBTQ people. Yes. And that, Jeff, you were very involved in that. And I want to add, I mean, I, people who listen to the show know that I spent, I got out of broadcasting for a number of years and went and worked as the Southern Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Passing a hate crimes law in Georgia was one of our highest priorities. And for six, seven years, we worked at that every session. And Jeff, as you well know, legislators would say, I don't know if they'd say it to you, they'd say it to me, we'll pass a hate crimes law as long as you exclude gays and lesbians from the legislation because we don't want to codify them in state law. And, of course, we refuse to do that, and you're well aware of how hard that fight was, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, you know, I I have to first acknowledge the strong allyship of uh, the Jewish community, because uh, ADL for so long had taken the lead on this, but also uh, specifically the, the the black civil rights leadership in this state uh, that, you know, uh, over decades did not budge. Because, yes, it, the bill could have gone through 20, maybe even 30 years ago if if people had been willing to cut a deal to leave out LGBTQ torches. 
And yeah. our allies down at the Capitol, people of color and the Jewish community, other marginalized groups that needed this law just as badly, if not in some ways even more so because of the long history of violence against religious minorities and the black community here in Georgia, stood steadfast with us for so long. And we have to say that it was, uh, interestingly, a Republican, Tamar, who finally sponsored the legislation that he built a by Chuck F. Stration from Gwinnett County, built a bipartisan coalition, and then passed it, as I said. I think, I think it's been three sessions now since that law passed, Tamar. Yeah, signed actually last summer, so June 2020. Oh, okay, so it was two yeah. sessions. All right, got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in a minute. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, um, the uh, 2015 uh, decision by the United States Supreme Court in Oberfell, which legalized uh, gay marriage, was celebrated as one of the greatest accomplishments, achievements uh, in uh, jurisprudence for uh, uh, gay, gay and lesbian people. Uh, and, and so it looked as if things were moving in the right direction, and then the Trump administration comes along. And the setbacks uh, that uh, they put in place, obstacles they put to other civil rights for gays, uh, reminded us there's still a lot of work to be done. And I mean, in, in Georgia, too, we talk about, uh, you know, religious liberty bills and, and carve outs for, for people who, who don't want to serve LGBTQ people at various establishments. And that still is very much something under discussion, you know, in Georgia last session, uh, two separate bills that would have affected transgender youths having to do with their ability to play sports, to get hormones, um, anything like that. So still very much under discussion nationally and here in Georgia. Yeah, that's important, Taylor. The, the transgender issues, which the legislature put aside last session, are certainly not going away. And there continues to be a strong movement at the Capitol uh, to, in fact, take up legislation that would marginalize transgender individuals, transgender youth, uh, very specifically, yes? Taylor, are you there? Absolutely. I feel as if um, when it comes to transgender youth and transgender communities, often these things over the past decade, um, we become the, the kind of target, the new... Uh, thing that people use in conservative circles to kind of spark outrage or to say that we are some sort of uh, threat or harm to the greater society. And I'm, I'm thankful to see so much resistance to that. And I hope that uh, the kind of ire towards trans communities that has developed over the past, you know, four or five years since the last uh, administration took hold um, can move to the wayside and we can finally have some kind of like progressive um, forward-thinking inclusion and protection of trans folks, especially trans youth. Shannon, and I'm going to ask Jeff the same thing, because we're coming down to the end of the show. Where we see the transgender fight as being one that's going to continue for some time, where else are the big challenges confronting the community moving forward? I mean, to me, it, it is that fight, right? Taylor hit the nail on the head that it is about trying to drive a wedge between um, different factions of the LGBT community. And 
I hope, you know, I feel like we are learning our lesson and, and you know, I am very committed to, and many um, of the LGB community are over it. We're done with this trying to drive the wedge. We are here for our trans brothers and sisters. Um, so to me, like standing up and saying, keep your hands off the trans kids, um, leave them alone is really important and has really mobilized a lot of people. I also think, you know, working towards a comprehensive civil rights law, right? We're still really, really vulnerable legally. I think one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with is housing, right? Thankfully, the Supreme Court is, has said you can't fire somebody because of their sexual orientation and gender identity, but it's still legal to evict somebody or to deny them a, um, an apartment or a home. And, and that is um, a really big problem. And so we need legislation to protect people, to, to give them a safe place to lay their head at night um, and, and help them thrive as Georgians. Jeff? Yeah, just real quickly, uh, this U.S. Supreme Court yesterday took an action that I think a lot of people mm-hmm. missed that I did want to just bring up when we're talking specifically about trans youth. And they rejected a, 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 a case with a transgender student uh, where he was denied access to using uh, restroom facilities in his school. And so that left in place a lower court ruling that said that, yes, Title IX does cover transgender, gender nonconforming youth. And so that gives me great hope uh, that at least from a, a, a court perspective, we may be at the end of this, but as, as Taylor said, this, uh, well, and Shannon as well, both of them, uh, this, this is the battle going forward, and the entire community needs to recognize this and put as much weight into pr- protecting trans youth, trans adults, gender nonconforming people as we did in the fight for the freedom to marry. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that important Supreme Court decision uh, yesterday, uh, Jeff. Uh, Tamar, it's a long, long road to uh, legal legal rights, human rights, acceptance by a community. You documented it going back to 1971 in Georgia. But um, it, we really learn as we talk about things like this, Tamar, just how long the fight is to, to be accepted and uh, protected in the same way that all people have to be. Sure. And we're so lucky we get to talk to such smart people like Jeff Taylor and Shannon, who can help kind of explain all the different facets of, of all of this. I agree. And that's I want to do that, Jeff. We're really running short on time. But one of the reasons that I, it was important that you be on the show is not only because you are a leader in, in so many ways in the fight for equal justice, but you have shown over the decades a patience and a willingness to get in and talk reasonably and responsibly. And I can't help but think that at times you must go home at night and knock your head against the wall. (laughs) But you have made progress. Thanks, Bill. And yes, I definitely knocked my head against the wall. I've got an amazing team at Georgia Equality uh, that supports me, an amazing community that joins me in this. And frankly, uh, that's what I do now. But I have a long uh, arrest record. I was a bad boy uh, 30 years ago, so I got it out of my system. (laughs) 
Jeff Graham, uh, Shannon Clawson, Taylor Alexander, I really appreciate your our conversation today. Tomorrow, you are so right. It's smart people talking about an important issue. Thank you all for being here. We're back tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about how other countries have looked at the histories that they face, the dark histories, like, say, Germany and uh, the, the Nazis and Adolf Hitler, and put it in the context of what we're dealing with in terms of critical race theory today. That's tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. See you then.